if we just make everything a little bit more accessible in terms of being able to afford it or being able to interact with it, it's just going to make the field so much better. Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. Welcome to the weekly typographic. Our weekly episodes talk about type and design news, but we've got a bonus episode for you today. We're chatting with a designer that's innovating the field through education and their practice. It's going to be fun. Let's jump in. This week, we're interviewing Lynn Yoon. Lynn is a type designer and educator who specializes in typography and lettering and calligraphy. Her education background includes a BFA in graphic design from SVA, a postgraduate certificate in typeface design from Type at Cooper, and she's also attended the School for Poetic Computation and is now working on her master's at the Interactive Telecommunications Program at NYU. She has previously worked as a full-time graphic designer at Apple, Publicis, and Deutsch, and was also type designer for Monotype, designing trade gothic display and inline families. She's currently an educator at Type at Cooper, Parsons School of Design, and Letterform Archive. She's a member of organizations like the Society of Scribes and Alphabets, and she has a new design studio, Space Type Continuum. It's about a year old, and the official website has just recently dropped. Welcome, Lynn! Thank you for having me. It is so awesome to have you here. This is going to be so fun. Yeah, we were really looking forward to this. We particularly chose you as our first person to interview because you are truly innovating in the education field within type and design and also innovating within your own practice. We're going to jump into it. I feel like that background introduction tells people just like how many fields you kind of have worked in and like your diverse background. You're such a polymath to me when I think of someone that kind of hands their hands in a lot of different things. I know you're blushing, but you deserve all this credit (laughs) because you've accomplished so much. And Lynn and I met actually several years ago when I was still in college You were helping run the Society of Scribes Scholarship Program, correct? Yes, that's right. That's how we met, and you kind of introduced me to calligraphy and also served as like a great mentor throughout, you know, this early professional years. I took your lettering class at Type at Cooper, so I know you are just have a wealth of knowledge stored inside your brain. (laughs) I'm very (laughs) excited to have that knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) Too kind, Olivia, too kind, but thank you. So we kind of have some questions that will dive deep into your story throughout the years in the creative field and some challenges you overcome. I think, you know, our audience has a lot to learn from you. Our first question, we framed this question this certain way because it's helpful to hear about someone who's accomplished so much, but sometimes you don't always hear like kind of the messier bits of those accomplishments. It's not always point A to B. It's not always so straightforward. So what has been the hardest part of your experience in the creative field so far? I guess that's a question that changes day to day, I would say. But I think overall, like if I had to really think about it, it's planning, I think. For me, like I just have like so many hobbies, so many different interests. I feel like I'm just hopping around all the time. And I feel like as a student, there was this myth of having a very definite roadmap. You just get on the train and you just keep on going towards like the next milestone. But I'm discovering that as, you know, a few years like into the industry, like that path wasn't very clear anymore. And now I'm just not even sure if there even is a path. Yeah. So that's, that's probably the hardest part so far. Wait, can I ask, when did you graduate? Like how long have you been on your own in the industry? Fairly recent. I mean, I guess that's always subjective. Uh, Since 2013. So I graduated in my undergrad in 2013 at SVA. I'm curious, like when you were graduating, I think some people kind of start imagining what their life is going to be like in the next five years, like going to start as a junior designer, then make myself 
up as a designer. And some people are like, I'm going to start freelancing and just run with that. Think about back when you were graduating, what was your idea of what path you were going to take? Because I'm curious how that has changed and maybe how much has stayed the same. Oh yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think in senior year, there was like an exercise in a class that I was in that we all had to write down what we were going to be doing in the next five years or something like that. Um, and then I think like I was trying to go live in Park Slope in a brownstone and I wanted to be working at Pentagram. It's very specific. Wow. <laughs> None of those things have happened. That's funny though, because like even even though no one I've ever talked to, it was like an easy, solid, straight line to where you wanted to go. You always think that it's gonna be, right? It's true. Like you start out thinking, I'm I'm gonna have these specific things, this is where I'm going. At what point did it go from kind of that vision to something different? Hmm. I think it's when you realize that everything that you admired in the industry is sort of like a myth. Um, I think for me, like the biggest, (laughs) I think like for me, like the biggest myth is like when like people said it was going to be so fulfilling to like make work your life. And then, you know, you graduate and start working these 60, 80 hour work weeks. And then you're like this, I don't want this to be my life. Mm. I think that was probably like the first step. And you know, Mm. when you were, Working those 60 to 80 hour weeks, I remember in lettering class, you said that like you'd go home and you worked on that hand lettered map of the USA. Yeah, yeah, I would do that. I think I'm trying to like think back to my first job. So my first job uh, out of school was working at Apple and that was like a really, really long job, partially because the commute was at least like an hour and a half one way. So like three hours of my day was getting spent on commuting, which is very, very common for everyone that works in the Bay Area, you know, pre-pandemic, I think. And then on top of that, I was getting to work by nine and then taking the nine uh, twenty bus back home. That was the most common route of me getting to work and then coming back to work. So like I had nothing except to work. And, and that was pretty bad, I think. And then I came back to New York and I started learning type design. And then there's always that like area where you have to sort of figure out what you like to be doing versus what people will pay you for, which for me was advertising. So I was doing a lot of advertising work, uh, which was not great at times. Like I remember, especially when I was very productive at home, I was doing very mundane things at work. I distinctly remember working on like a paint coupon for like a month or something. Like that was like all wow. I did. Like $5 a coupon to buy coupon. paint? It was worse. It was a rebate coupon after you buy the paint. You mail in oh. your $5 coupon and then get, you know. And that was a month? Yeah, that was, I think and it so, was like a month. It was like a slow period I like at work, but it was, it was pretty bad. Yeah. You said you were most productive at home when like you had the most mundane things at work. Like what do you think that, what was that productivity at home? I think it was a lot of hand done things. I think it's common for people to gravitate towards more cra- like hands-on crafts hobbies when they're just dealing with things on the computer all day. And I think it was like the same thing for me, just a lot of hand lettering. Um, yeah. What else did I do? I, I feel like I just have a ton of hobbies like on a maybe monthly basis that rotate in and out. <laughs> um, and you also mentioned that like you were, you got into type design when you moved back to New York, like what kind of fueled that fire? A multitude of factors. I think, first of all, I really wasn't happy with my job in San Francisco. Like the job that I was doing at Apple was not creatively fulfilling enough um, and rewarding enough. And then like that coupled with just having like friends already in New York and 
you know, f- the friend group kind of being non-existent in San Francisco and also just not having the time, time outside of work to even create a new community of friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like, I think it was sort of an easy decision to move back. And I think it was also that and um, just being forced to use Helvetica and Myriad all day at work just made mm. me want to make more type. Yeah. Wow. I could, I like didn't even think about that being a factor and being like, let me get out of this tunnel I've been in and haven't been able to escape for so long. Yeah. That is, that is an interesting extension of that, though, because I can imagine it would be just as easy for someone who has to use those, you know, fonts at work all day to then go home and be like, you know what, I want to make something and use different fonts. But you went home and you were like, you know, what? I want to make something different. What do you think was the difference? Like, what what about you made you want to make a font? That I don't know. I think I think I was attracted to lettering in the way that I was initially attracted to graphic design because I really thought that graphic designers were like I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but like Alphonse Muka, uh, the the Czech um, uh, designer, illustrator, sculptor, basically everything under the sun. Um, I think that was my original inspiration. I kind of saw like the the Muka posters once in a gallery and I was like, that's that's who I want to be. And I thought that's mm-hmm. what graphic design was until, uh, you know, I got to school and discovered that there's actually a font menu. I don't, you don't draw everything out of scratch. Mm. That's so funny you mentioned that. I feel like I was really obsessed with Alfonso Muka before I came to art school. And it was also one of those things where I'm like, I'm going to make stuff like this. And I remember like sketching out tattoos that I wanted to have that had Alfonso Muka. So I think it's definitely like that fluidness. I get it that like Art Nouveau, it's kind of over the top, but your eye travels once you see it. So that's so funny. That's, that's right. Great. That's great. Wow. That's a so, good reference too. I haven't I haven't heard that name in so long, but like I used to be obsessed with Alfonso Muka too when I was younger. <laughs> it's a I think everybody has like a Muka phase. <laughs> um, Lynn, did you have any friends in type design? Like how did you get started? Because I know you went to type at Cooper, but like what was the transition from thinking maybe I'll do type design to like actually starting it? I guess I have to admit, I didn't really know any type designers as friends or even in real life, I would say. <laughs> I did have like a type, uh, I think, 101 class or something with Ed Banget when I was at SVA. Wow. But that was a very, very different. Yeah, that was a very, very different class. It was nothing like what modern type was like. We drew letters two inches high wow. and corrected everything with xeroxing and cutting papers and then xeroxing it back out or something it was very very different so art school (laughs) it was very art school um yeah i think i just vaguely had realized that some of the people that i knew on the internet like jessica hish had gone to type at cooper and i just like wanted to go and i applied right after i graduated undergrad and i got in except i had no job um Mm. so i actually had deferred for the year Oh. Yeah, before I went. So you went yeah. to Type of Cooper like pretty soon after you graduated. I'd say one year after undergrad is pretty closely following your graphic design studies. Yes, that's that's accurate. So I got out of school. I worked at Apple for one year, um, saved up enough for tuition, moved there, moved back, and then Type of Cooper. 
Oh my gosh. You had like a whirlwind experience. <laughs> um, well, that's, I mean, that's super exciting to hear that background and like we've been friends and I don't even know all of that story. So that's super fun. Okay. Pivoting a little bit, you know, like from all of your background, which we're still going to get into a little bit more. Um, what would you say is the most important advice you have gotten or would like to give on creativity and business? Hmm. That's, that's a very good question. And it's hard because it seems to be changing all the time. The advice that I would have given maybe even like three months ago is nothing like the advice that I would give today. I think if I had to give advice for anyone that's starting out, it would be that to not judge yourself based on what is out there on social media. I think when I was starting out, there were like so many of these typical uh, heroes or these very idolized design studios out there. And it almost seemed it was the truth that you wanted to eventually go work for these people, go work for these companies. But, you know, it's like, it's not the same anymore. And those people change and those companies change and nothing is set in stone. So I think it would just be to keep a fluid outlook on what you want to be, where you want to go. And I know like that's like really ambiguous advice because it's it's so much easier to have a goalpost and be like, you need to get there. But yeah, just like keeping your options open is I think the way to less stress. Because if you have a very, very definite goal, like you are going to work for these people, work for this company, make X amount of money, the chances are is that you will change as a person when you're working towards those things. But if you don't have that mindset to be able to change your goals, then you're limiting yourself or at least like not keeping yourself happy, I think. Hmm, that's interesting. Wait, so can you kind of maybe give an example of how that has proven true for you currently? Yeah, I think when I was in school, there was definitely this mindset that you don't show anything that is subpar. Like you are always going to have this like super picture perfect uh, body of work that will speak for you as a designer, as a creative. And if it's not up to snuff, it's also your criteria as a designer to not show anything that is subpar. But I think these days I'm trying to let imperfect things be imperfect imperfect things and it's not okay to finish something to completion for example when i think about typefaces like even like uh you know five six years ago it was that like there was going to be this like perfect gem of a typeface that was going to be used on all these things versus nowadays i think to myself and say you know if i make a typeface that'll be great for price tags at a deli and it's great for those price tags then great i should just release it not everything needs to be the next Gotham. Although I think um, a few years ago, that used to be what you should aim for. Yeah. Mm, I think I see what you're saying. So you're kind of suggesting that the, the super lofty goals that I think are really easy to have because of sort of the celebrity culture of design, those are not as perfect as they seem on the internet. And so you have kind of adjusted the way you look at things to be like, you know what? I, I just want this thing to exist. I have this idea. I just want to make that and then cool. Yeah, and it goes for all these other things. I think uh, when I was like starting out, I really wanted to be sort of like the lettering artist that only creates handcrafted things. 
and that was going to be my thing. And then later on, I get into type and I have this like identity crisis. Like, what does it mean that I like creating things that are digital now as opposed to only handcrafted things? Mm. Um, yeah. So I think having a goal is great, but I think when you're stuck on that goal, you almost start to have this like crisis where you're not really sure where, and it's mm-hmm. like, I think as creatives, you know, sitting on, sitting on our like small matchbox apartments, especially these days, like mm-hmm. you sort of look back and they're like, what did I do this year? Um, yeah. How would you describe like your work now? Like how much of your creative work is digital versus analog? Because you're, you're going to school in basically a coding program, correct? Can you explain the ITP program a little bit at NYU so that people have a little more background? <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to the ITP program right now. Uh, I think the slogan is, it's an engineering school for artists and it's an artistic school for engineers. So, <laughs> yeah. So that, wait, uh, yeah, ITP that's... stands for Interactive Telecommunications Program? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think the program has been around for like four decades. So whatever oh. back then probably doesn't really make sense right now. Okay. And so that's the ambiguous interactive telecommunications program. It doesn't sound like anything, um, like at face value. Yeah, so the program has no required courses that you have to take, honestly. You could sort of go through the entire thing only having, I guess, like abstract concepts um, or like come through it with a very concrete skill set that you might want. It's sort of like a unstructured program that just has like everything that is considered cutting edge and artsy and creative and coding and programming under the sun. Um, So I think the courses that I'm taking range from machine learning to the concept of time, like as in like the literal history and timekeeping aspect. Um, Yeah, that course is very interesting. Yeah, so like it can can range from something very technical to the very abstract. That's awesome. And then, sorry, I know that was a great tangent, but going back to your actual practice, how much do you say is analog versus digital? Like I know that program is really digital, but I see you making like flourish name cards the other day on Instagram. So um, I love that dichotomy that you can incorporate in your work, but like, I'm just curious these days what it's looking like. These days I have to say because of the pandemic, a lot of things are going digital. It's just limiting in terms of what I can make. My apartment is limited in terms of space. So I have like a bunch of equipment lying around, but I can't really be like soldering things and then clear all that to make room for my monitor the next day. Mm -hmm. So I think these days it's sort of skews more towards software, um, which is like not necessarily a bad thing. I think right now, like I've, I have a very big interest in hardware as applies to computational hardware because for me like that bridges the gap between like the making aspect and the analog aspect um, that I love so much and also the computational aspect of programming. So I make random things like controllers um, that are very useful but also fun. Is there anything specific that you have made that was just for fun? Oh yeah, I made a clock for fun. Um, oh. But yeah, but you'd be surprised. Like like the little watch uh, watches that you might have bought for like $5 or something at the dollar store. It says like quartz crystal watch or whatever. <laughs> um, so that quartz crystal is actually a very specific crystal. So I was very curious about, well, if I got this crystal, could I make a clock out of it? And so I wired up this entire thingamajig is the only way I can describe <laughs> it. It was... It were all these little chips that were connected 
just so it could count up. It was a very fancy timer that was connected to a crystal that was counting up the seconds, like one, two, three, four, five, six. And like this whole elaborate contraption was just to count up to 60, bump it up to the next row, count up to 60, bump it up to the next row. And then the final one was 24 because it was like a 24 hour military clock. And then after the whole thing gets to 24, then the whole thing resets at zero. And it seems like it would be a very simple thing, but I think the I think the clock that I ended up making was actually like, I think bigger than the size of my face. Uh, So so (laughs) it sort of speaks to, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Have you made any like hybrid projects with your computational learning that you're doing now and like lettering or type design or anything like that for our listeners interested in letter forms? I think I had ideas that sort of went away because of the pandemic, honestly, like a lot of manufacturers are understandably, um, you know, being slow with manufacturing. I think the closest that I got to was creating lettering to be made in the form of gears. So like it was going to be this clock of gears that it would spin at certain ratios. And then like this gear clock, like a grandfather clock would, yeah, would count up to the time. And I was hoping that the gears itself would be just full of like custom lettering because a gear, as long as it's made out of the right metals it doesn't have to be any specific shape yeah but that also requires access to a water jet cutter which i don't have in my apartment so really you don't have one of those under your bed (laughs) too bad too bad (laughs) wow that's that's crazy i i'm like still wrapping my head around it but (laughs) i'll have to listen to it another time (laughs) but i i love that so much um i mean something i definitely wanted you know chat about is that you have been so fluid in your career you've done graphic design type design calligraphy you have also like taken control of your career by you know kind of pivoting career paths and then pivoting educational paths I find myself at at many times when I'm kind of like stuck in a habit getting myself empowered to make a big career leap and I know a lot of people will talk about you know making career leap and just have a hard time to find the nugget of courage that allow them to do it and it seems like you've been able to successfully do that throughout the years. So, you know, what insights would you share for someone interested in making a big leap in their career, whether that be in a new education program or a new career path? Changing career paths are hard because it almost seems like you're leaving behind what you have already started and almost as if you're sort of abandoning that road and taking a new one. And I have to admit that I was very scared the first time. It becomes easier, as people say, after the second and third. And what I'm only starting to realize now is that all those paths are eventually connected. For me, when I was starting out in type design, it seemed like I was abandoning like the four years and my undergrad degree uh, that I had accumulated in graphic design. And then when I went to like most recently, the more computational methods of making things like becoming a creative coder, um, developer, programmer, whatever you want to call it. Like it seemed like I was almost abandoning the road of type design. And Mm. it seemed like people were like, oh, Lynn, like you're not going to be a type designer. (laughs) And that I think threw me off for a loop for a little bit. And I have to say that now that I look back at it, everything comes together for me. Like for me, I think now my identity is a person that has done all these things and is able to connect these fields to um, not specialize in one specific field, but to specialize in the fact that I can connect these dots. And so I I guess that's, that's that's interesting (laughs) connected to what you were talking about, about identity earlier. And I can relate to that. It's sort of like, 
it seems from the outside and maybe even at first glance from the inside that switching means you're getting rid of something and changing your whole identity. And really, you're adding a new piece to your identity that will eventually become this like conglomeration of all the cool things that you have done in the past. Yeah, definitely. I think I was looking at this concept of the liminist uh, from Alex Singh. Uh, I hope I'm not mispronouncing the name, but there was this uh, write-up that I encountered on Arena a little while ago, and it was about the concept of the liminist where the opposite of the specialist is perhaps not the generalist, but the liminist where you are specializing in a limited number of fields and you're specializing in connecting these silos of knowledge. And I thought that was very, very inspirational for me because that's right. Like perhaps like in this time that we live in where everything is basically Googleable, you just need to know the right things to Google and the right people to talk to. Perhaps the real specialist these days is the person that knows how to hunt for these nuggets of fields and to be able to connect them in a way that is uh, comprehensible. Mm. I love that. That is inspiring. Yeah. I mean, and I feel like you, you've done that in your education because I, I was in your lettering class and I remember we kind of went through calligraphy and lettering and type design. And like to some people, you know, those are three different specialties. And I think you were able to like bridge that gap. But I think that bridging that gap is so important for making new like cognitive connections. Because I remember and when I was in college, our senior year, we could take calligraphy as an elective. And, you know, that's kind of what led me to Society of Scribes. But there were so many fundamentals in calligraphy that all of us seniors that are ready to graduate after doing, you know, four years of art school were like, how were we not taught this for our foundation year? Like, how did this not get brought up? Um, and it's because this idea that, you know, you should be focusing on your specialty and make that really great when really all these tangents connect so well. Yeah, it's very true. It's quite difficult to think about what you need to know in order to go through a certain path like these days. I know like there's certain specialty words that get thrown around. Like everybody wants to be this like brand something, brand specialist. Brand, like, <laughs> it's, it's quite funny. But like the, the thing is, is that like all these so-called specialties just kind of come and go all the time. And it seems that a job description that was here yesterday might not be there tomorrow. But then the good thing is like there might be a new description that's coming in tomorrow. <laughs> So, yes, I think it's just really up to people to define what they like to do and just not let um, a label become the goal, perhaps. That seems, that seems profound. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like that, that needs to be on a poster somehow. Yeah, and I, I feel like that is why people that were doing graphic design were like too scared to go to type design for so long. And people um, were too afraid. Like I know a lot of graphic designers that are like, oh, type design, that's scary. You actually know some of that knowledge already and bridging that gap can make you a better graphic designer if you know type design. And you know, understanding lettering might also make you a better graphic designer. So I think that's really important that you're saying this on the podcast, especially I know we have a lot of people that are you know newer in their career, whether that be graphic design or type design, and everyone's so scared that they just have to focus on what they're doing and do it really, really well and kind of go you know one one path. But like I think you're such a great success story of like going multiple paths and embracing that, which I just I don't think is as common at times as much as we'd like it to be. I guess it's true. Well, so that kind of leads to you know one of the reasons you've been 
excitedly talked about recently, Lynn, is because you just had this amazing Kickstarter campaign for a type design class that you are making yourself. What led to that, you know, in the context of all these other varied interests and like different identities, what led to that? And what, what was that experience like leading up to making Kickstarter happening? Yeah, I think the Kickstarter campaign came together really quickly. Like I would say from me sort of thinking, oh, maybe I should do a Kickstarter for a course to like, here's the Kickstarter. I think it was maybe like two and a half weeks. It was really, really fast. Yeah, it was, it, it wasn't this like long saga that came to be or something like that. I think the, the catalyst was very simple. The catalyst was that all the courses and workshops that I was scheduled to teach for the summer got canceled. And then, so I was thinking, oh, like, what could I do for the summer? And then coincidentally, I had been working on a series of the history of our Latin alphabet for the lettering class, Olivia, you'll remember. Yes, so I, I do. Yeah. So I was making these courses and I was really enjoying the research aspect that goes into just preparing for a lecture. I just like really love getting out all my books, Googling things to sort Same. of, yeah, that have all these lectures, um, you know, come into being. And then after I did a series of those, I think it was a six part lecture. I was like, I actually enjoy recording things. Maybe I should expand this to an entire type design class. So, so there it was. I mean, and it seems that, and then you're just like, oh, all right, I guess it exists now. And that yeah. history of the alphabets is available on your site and on YouTube, right? It's super comprehensive. I mean, like, how long is it total? Like six hours or something? <laughs> I think it's, I think it's like about half the amount, maybe like three hours, but yes. Oh my God. <laughs> it's so like you pack so much in one punch and it's, it's very, that's also impressive. I mean, so you're a Kickstarter. I'm just going to brag for you because I know you're not going to do it. Um, <laughs> I had a minimum goal of $4,000, which was reached in six hours. And you ultimately raised over $16,000, right? Yeah, I am blown away. I am still very much blown away. It's... It's astounding. Um, I remember even like the day before I launched it, I was like, maybe I should have it like 3,500. That's 4,000 too, uh, too high. Mm. Um, <laughs> it, it, was, it was pretty wild. It was all like also like filmed and made in, my, in the living room, right? Like nowadays you can't go anywhere. So like that was also like pretty wild. I was like, how do I record things? I just borrowed the camera off of my neighbor. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I'm, oh I'm interested what, what your insight is to why that exploded more than you even expected. Like, I, it sounds like you were like the rest of us of like, ah, I think this is a cool idea. I don't know if it's going to work. Why do you think everybody was so excited about that? I think there was a whole flurry of educational resources becoming available at low cost or uh, free of charge at the very start of the pandemic, I think. And I think that idea sort of came out of that. Um, sorry, Micah, I lost track. <laughs> I'm just curious, like, what your take is on why you ended up getting four times the amount that you expected. Who were the people who, you know, now that you've done it and you see the people who have signed up, uh, have you talked to those people? Like, what, what sort of insight did you get from why they were so excited about the course that you made for them? That's a good question. I think the initial audience that I expected is different from the audience that uh, I eventually received, which is very interesting and insightful for me. I think there has been traditional type 
design programs, traditional being still being very recent, like the coastal programs, like there's um, type at Cooper in New York, and there's a type West program that, uh, that used to be connected to the type of Cooper program, like on the West coast in San Francisco. So I think there are programs on the coastal areas that people could go to, but I think largely anywhere in the middle of the country and also outside of the States, you know, in areas that are like not parts of Europe, just didn't have this like type design program that they could learn from. Mm. And I think also coincides with the arrival of uh, user-friendly type design programs, like the Glyphs app software that makes it like really easy for people to just start out doing type design um, and also Robofont. And also like the fact that these programs don't cost an arm and a leg. There just weren't comprehensive enough programs for them to learn from. So I think that's like a good overlap portion. And I also think there was a lot of support from type design professionals. And I think that a lot of type designers are actually educators and they probably deal with a similar question all the time. Like, where can I learn type design? But the reality is, is that like, if you live in the middle of the country, like there really isn't anywhere for you to learn from besides maybe a Skillshare video here and there. And I think like, so it was like a support from like two groups, like uh, the students that were supporting because they wanted to learn. And then this educator group that was supporting because they knew that there were students that wanted to learn this out there and they just wanted to help uh, bring the program to life. That makes a lot of sense. And that's, and that's like a whole area that you didn't even think you were going to tap into. No, definitely not. <laughs> I mean, I can't even imagine if I had that resource. I, when I was in college, I was trying to make my first typeface and I kind of, I did, um, hodgepodge, a bunch of resources on the internet. I believe one was a type Thursday interview with you, Lynn. I think you were interviewed by them, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I think I found your website through that. So I think I maybe even knew you before I officially met you. That that's happened funny. with Micah. It's just a theme with me and like type people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I bought the book Designing Type by Karen Cheng, which was super helpful. But like besides me just trying to like Google search the heck out of the topic, it was really, really difficult to find anything affordable or reasonable. And if I had your class, I'm, which I'm going to take again because I'd love to like kind of restart the education with the fresh eyes a few years later, it would just really have changed my perspective. So I'm very excited for all the you know younger designers and graphic designers that want to see what type design is like and have never had an affordable avenue to go down to get a comprehensive look at it. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. I think I, I, th I think a common theme in what I try to do, um, just, well, let me rephrase. I think a common thing that I have is empathy for a lot of younger designers, precisely because like I was definitely that starving student in New York. I think like my goal when I was in like undergrad was to be able to afford a soda and a guac on my Chipotle burrito. Like it was really, really sad. Relatable. Um, that is relatable yeah, content. Yeah. Like, so like, I think when I think about like these classes, it's always, I always like think about like the student on the other end, maybe they're already like going through school and they're already working um, like their tail off to like just be able to afford rent and like to just add on like a whole like institution's worth of tuition on them like seems like wildly unfair. And that's why I, in part that I um, helped co-found the Society of Scribes Scholarship Program just so calligraphy classes are more affordable or the very, like, very least like low, you know, no cost to students. And then like my class as well. I think the hardest part is that middle ground of 
how much do I need to be making from my endeavors for me to pay my rent? But also like on the flip side, like how can I make this affordable enough so that anybody can learn if they just have a little bit of willpower? And I think the Kickstarter was very refreshing and enlightening for me to see that because like I can definitely pay my rent with all the money that I earn. And I also have enough capital to put back into my classes. And I don't know, um, I don't know if you know, but I've been offering free scholarships to my course for Mm. all, yeah, all uh, by POC students and also for alphabets, anyone who's taking part in the mentorship program, I've also offered to them for free. So like any mentorship program that's free that is about type design i've been offering my courses like as a free scholarship and also for juan villanueva's display type scholarship so anyone that didn't get the actual uh, course admission i offered my class for free for them as well so that's like the part that has been amazing for me because it got overfunded i'm able to offer my course for free for all these areas and students that i really want to support so i mean i'm very thankful I think that's necessary action that needs to be taken if we want to diversify type design. I mean, type design in general is not a super diverse field at all. And I think it is because type education was super expensive and you had to put forth a large investment and whether that be time or money or working for free just to learn how to even get started, there was and kind of this gatekeeper mentality over type design. And I think that ultimately led a lot of people to being too nervous to try it out. And I think it ultimately led to a to only a selection of people being able to opportunity to go down that path. So, I mean, I know he, you and Juan have been like working hard to, you know, make that a wider audience. And I, I think that's just like an incredibly important and again, innovative way to put action to our words at this point, because like, I think that is our responsibility as a community to widen our audience and, you know, make it more available and more inclusive. Yeah. I think if we just make everything a little bit more accessible in terms of being able to afford it or being able to interact with it, like it's just going to make the field so much better. I think the previous aspect of type design that sort of was the gatekeeping mechanism was that you had to be in it to learn it. You had Mm. to either like commit to at the very minimum a year long program or be prepared to work in it. So if you weren't going to make that huge investment in your career or at the very least like take a huge chunk out of your life in order to go do that you just weren't going to learn this thing and i think it shouldn't be like that you should be able to say hey i want to make a typeface for the next like month and if it doesn't work out i can move on Mm. um and then you know i think like that way the field is going to get a lot more diverse because who really has the time and privilege to set aside such a big chunk of their life down for like this thing that may not make them any money in the future it's it's a very big question <laughs> yeah i mean that's super insightful mic drop right now <laughs> on that <laughs> i don't have anything more to say i think that like really kind of sums it up that just makes um, me wish we did this interview like three years ago yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and i know you mentioned alphabets we're definitely huge fans of alphabets we try to share 
their articles and I know they recently came out with their mission on how to move type forward, I think in really innovative ways, like stop using non-Latin to describe alphabets that aren't necessarily Latin. I think there's some great thoughts. What is alphabets for people that don't know? And like, what has your involvement been and how can other people use it as a resource? Oof, I feel like I'm not going to do alphabets justice by describing them, but I would loosely describe it as a group of women in type who are sharing knowledge. Perhaps that's like the most wide description that I can make it as. It's, It's a group of around like 240 or so people. And any organization that has that many people in it is going to be inherently hard to define because everyone has their own ideas and varying different levels of description in what they do or what they think this is all about. But I think recently that article that you mentioned, Olivia, is great because it puts forward an opinion. And I think the organization as a whole, as in a bunch of people in the organization, believed in it enough to put this out there. And I know it generated a ton of controversy to say the least, but I think it's important that a network of people supported the writers enough to like go out on a limb and just to put that out there. And there's an, there's a great mentorship program that is available for free. Anyone can be a mentor or mentee. You just have to apply. Yeah. I mean, Alphabet was also on the list of organizations I stalked while I was trying to do type design. So I wanted to make sure we got like an accurate description. That was awesome. We have a few more questions, some more tactical. I think our last like bigger question that I want to ask is, I know you've been involved in a lot of passion projects and a lot of stuff you do on your own time. And I think that's actually led you to have the super broad ranging body of work and has led to all these different paths. Um, which passion, passion project or projects led to a pivotal moment in your career? I have to say that I don't think a passion project has ever given me a shebang moment. That's hard to describe, but I would say like, yeah, I, I know like usually people have this one project that they did that blew up on the internet and then like they were invited everywhere and yeah. they were like suddenly talking, doing things for all these people. And I have to say, I don't think I ever had that passion project. I have to say my favorite project of yours is that black letter piece that you cut out with a, with an exacto knife. Anyone is listening, they should go to your website and find it. So I guess maybe if it didn't lead to a pivotal moment in your career, like I'm assuming it was still like fulfilling in other ways and like had brought you to learning new skills that maybe you can take in a tangential, more abstract way to different parts of your career. Yeah, I mean, I can, I, I will have to say it's never a passion project that brought me things, but it's passion classes, if they're a thing, um, that Aww. has brought me to different places in my career. Like my my passion and hobby is taking classes. Like I love making things, but honestly, I really love taking a class. Like I'm a class addict. Like if I don't have <laughs> classes lined up in my schedule, I'll just like peruse all these different organizations to see if they have workshops coming up. I'm always taking classes. Like, I mean, right now I'm in grad school but like right now it's summer, but I still am taking all these classes. Right now I'm taking a class on making shaders and taking a class on computational portraits and, and all these different things and making an open source voice assistant. So like those are like three of the classes that I'm taking this summer. And I think that those classes are usually what leads me to my more bigger projects. Like my classmate, Anthony Elder, recommended me for the World Trade Center mural project 
project that oh. uh, later got a lot of recognition. So like that was like where a classmate referred me to something. And then right before I started working at Monotype, um, I have to say I got that only because I was at a lecture uh, where there were woodcuts of Rudolf Koch and Juan Villanueva was there. And then I think after the lecture, we were like, oh, maybe we should go take a woodcut class so we can make things that... <laughs> <laughs> that came up in the mm -hmm. lecture. And then we were taking this woodcock class when Juan found out there was an opening at Monotype. And he was like, maybe you should apply for this. I'll refer you. And I was like, great. I'll, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll do this type thing. And uh, there's probably so many more stories like that. There's like so many stories where I just like took a class or went to a lecture. And then just by like chance, I happened to bump into this other person that was doing something. And maybe like a few weeks later, they were like, oh, you kind of came along. You do letters, right? Like do this. A lot of things like that happened. I think classes as a passion project is still very valid. And I, I love that. And I think it can be very motivating for people. I think that's awesome. Especially like as someone, I mean, I'm kind of similar in wanting to learn some weird new thing constantly. And I also feel like at least pre-pandemic, it was sometimes a good excuse to force myself to be social and meet people where you know, there's there's not always a ton of options for that, but like everybody's gathering in an in-person class in those instances because they like that one thing. And so it's almost easier to like make a random new friend that you wouldn't expect because you have that in common at least. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, it's a bonding group activity that you can do together. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love classes so much. I think there's like so many instances where I won't show up to happy hour, but... If someone's like, let me show how to make wax candles or something, like I'll be there. <laughs> I saw you took a neon class and you made like a neon type lettering piece out of that. Is that right? Yeah, I took an eight week letter, uh, eight week neon making class at Brooklyn Glass. It's in the Guanas in Brooklyn. Um, I, there's like so many different classes I've taken. I think I've taken like three semesters of ceramic, both hand building and throwing and I've learned like sewing, needle felting. Mm -hmm. uh, there's like a ceramic class. There's a bunch of printmaking classes. Like wood, I think I took like three semesters of woodblock cutting. Wow. <laughs> what else? There's probably like so many random things I can't think of right now. There's, yeah, there's a lot. That's awesome. That's, yeah. And yeah. one of them was calligraphy and one of them was type design. And some of them like lead into doing things. Yeah. And some of them just kind of end up as a messed up plate that I serve croutons to people like at a <laughs> party or something. Yeah, that's definitely like a really great message. And I'm super excited to amplify that. I have a couple more questions, a little more tactical. First one, what are your favorite software tools that you use? Any suggestions or shout outs? Software tools that I use are different from the software tools that I would like to use. So I will probably put them in two different categories. Okay. Software tools that I use in re reality are... Um, Glyphs app, IA Writer. It's like this writing app that you can write and mark down with. I love this app so much. Um, That's a beautiful one. Yeah. Yeah, IA Writer is great. Yeah, honestly, like I have to say, it's just it's just really Glyphs app that I use for professional purposes and also OBS Studio for recording my lectures and uh, Keynote because I need to prepare Keynote somewhere, uh, somehow. What was um, that recording? And program for your lectures? Oh, OBS Studio. I think it's okay. Open Broadcasting Studio. I have to say I use all these things, but I really wish 
that I could make my own software. I think like that is like the next thing for me. I just mm. want to be able to like create my own software and just do things with software that I make. It's kind of like the mentality of trying to make a ceramic bowl, I think. I mean, I just told you, I spent three semesters and making a making a real edible bowl is really hard. Like you make things and then there's these weird divots at the bottom that you can't use. And like, it's so hard. But I think that mentality also applies to software for me. I use Adobe InDesign, but I just wish like it had a lot less things in it. I like use LiftSap, but like I really wish like the software was a little bit more simpler but like all of these like existing softwares out there that do something that I really like, but other parts that I'm not quite sure of, I'm like a really big supporter of creating your own tools now. And partially that comes because there's so many different ways that people can build their own software. I'm like a huge fan of p5.js. It's so easy, like out of the gate, you can like create your own mini Photoshop in like hours it's amazing. Like, I just like wish I could build everything myself and just kind of live it, live a digital cottage life. What is it? Cottage core? <laughs> digital cottage core? Like, that's what I want to be. That's what I want everyone to live like. I wish I could build my own Adobe Illustrator and InDesign, or at the very least use the, the new design app that like my friends built. I think it's like almost like making, being a type designer. I go through the menu and I'm just like, I just imagine, you know, people's faces behind them is like, oh, this is my friend so-and-so. Like, you know, I, and I get a lot of yeah. pleasure out of just knowing all these people that built all these fonts. And I feel like it would be like super gratifying if I like opened up my calculator app and I just imagine, oh, Olivia, or, you know, <laughs> that's awesome i'm i really do hope your cottage dreams come true i've never heard that term i'm gonna start spreading it to people i know oh if it wasn't before yeah yeah our yeah. last question for today um this has been like just such an enlightening inspiring and motivating all the great words interview but who is a person right now working in the field in the letter form world that you admire? I think there's a lot of people that I admire. I think right now, just in this moment, I am inspired by a lot of um, educators that are working in the field. I think right now, um, James Edmondson from Ono Type Co has been putting up a lot of great instructional posts for, for type design that I really admire. You know, my good friend Juan Villanueva has been like putting up like so much information and scholarships and efforts out there um, in terms of scholarships for his display type class and also the type crit crew that he created. It's a mm -hmm. platform for anyone to become a type crit crew instructor or a type crit crew student. So like all you have to do is like just go on this like giant Google sheet of all these people that have generously agreed to spend some time um, critiquing people's work and you just sign up. It's so easy and anyone can register for it. And I've met students through there that I just like I'm so excited for um, that I just like am very glad that Juan just like made this. I, I think there's so many great ideas out there and it's just like you need to be willing to put in the legwork to actually do it. Like as long as someone starts it, like other people will come over to help. But the biggest part is just to start something. And that is like the hardest part. So yeah, yeah, I guess like Juan always puts in like the hard work of like laying out the groundwork and that's what I really admire about him. I mean, aside from, you know, all his amazing lettering and type work, but you know, that's a given on top of all everything else that he does. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, we're definitely followers of Ono Type Co. and James Edmondson's work and Juan's work. So I'm glad to see some overlap between like kind of bleak <laughs> minds and your mind. Not like I'm surprised at all. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an exciting time for type, I think. I think there has been a lot of movement towards like making type design more inclusive, more accessible, you know, both in terms of like education, but also like the people that are in it. And I think type design is a little bit behind other industries when it comes to like talking about inclusion and diversity, I think. And I I don't know exactly why, but I think perhaps like it's because of the size of the industry, because it's like such a smaller industry compared to like, you know, big tech or like graphic design, like it's a little bit slower to change. But I feel like this summer especially has been like a wake up call for a lot of people. Um, and, and it's just really nice to see all these efforts by like all these people. <laughs> it's There's so many. I just can't name all, all of them off the top of my head. I think Stephen Coles was recently putting out Wikipedia posts for all these under-recognized like black type designers or designers in general, I forget, but there's, there's so many good things. There's so many good things. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely like great to hear an optimistic look into the future. And I agree. I think like the type world is starting to see movement and change in ways that we haven't seen before. So I'm just as excited as you are. I don't know where this belongs, but like, I've been like thinking, a lot. <laughs> yeah, I've been like, I've been thinking a lot about representation, especially in like this climate. I think earlier I was talking about finding that border balance between like, how can you do the most good, but also take care of yourself, right? Like if you're making a class that is highly affordable, but you also have your own bills to pay, like how do you balance that between like charging people and also making sure like your own like lights are on? (laughs) I think like that also happens a lot for like representation, like in like the type world, there's a very small group of people that are always talking about their craft Uh, But because they specialize in something so small or like because they just like check off the diversity box, um, they feel like they're asked over and over again. Like certainly like I often have like the feeling when um, I'm asked to be on a panel and I sort of like look at the list. I'm like, oh, okay. I feel like they could, they felt like they could check off the, the, the non-men box and like the non-white box. So they picked me. And I, I mean, maybe this, this isn't related to anything, but I think like I just like keep thinking more and more that if we fix all the problems in the industry and there are so many more people that can like um, be in those areas, like I feel like the individual pressure that these like people that have previously felt tokenized have, you know, these previously tokenized people, I feel like that'll just alleviate like so much of the burden. And I feel like it's not so much of a thought as much as like, you know, like we're just going towards a place where it feels better for everyone. And I, this is this is like an aside, but like I did have this moment when I was like leaving my old advertising team. Like I was like the only woman and only minority and like a team full of European or like just like white men, I guess. And then like, I just had this moment when I was like quitting to go to uh, be a type designer. I was like, wow, like, am I like giving up representation? Am I like perpetuating like the bad side the bad image of advertising being full of white men because I'm leaving this space but at the same time like I just like wanted to go somewhere that was better for me so like I'm always wrestling with this idea of how do I make things better versus like what is giving up um, and leaving and like I think like that's not a one-layered question 
but I'm like really happy with how things are going, how like representation is getting better, how we think about uh, representation in like terms of events and society and, you know, all these like care and all these things are getting better because perhaps we're getting to a point where minorities don't really have to think of like, what is like looking out for yourself versus like doing something for the community. I feel like those two have been odds for me quite a bit. And like, I'm just like really happy that we're going to a place where maybe we won't have to think about these things anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the key to that, which I think you're also saying is teaching a whole slew of new people who didn't have access to it before using the tools that we have now, like the internet and like people like you. And I think tried us to some extent, we try to do this too of like, uh, we only need this much and we're fine with that. So let's uh, just hit that and then do as much as we can for everybody. And by opening that education up to, you know, I mean, this is uh, type type design. If that's the only thing we're talking about in this category, which it obviously isn't, like uh, type design as itself is this, like you were saying, a tiny industry of primarily white men, mostly like middle-aged white men. And teaching on the internet means that we enable this whole slew of other people who couldn't do it before to be able to do it if they want to. And that is not immediately visible that we're opening the floodgates, but is opening the floodgates in a way where you're, you're doing more by enabling so many potential people than you are being that one person on the team that is adding di diversity to you know the small team's thought process. Yeah, I, I think that's, yeah, that's definitely put very much more eloquently <laughs> than my ramble. <laughs> I appreciate uh, both of you guys. I'll just say <laughs> that right now. I think both are very insightful. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very it's very shocking almost how different the type field has become even like when when I started, which is like oh so long ago in like 2014. Like I remember like when I was studying type design, there were like no any Asian type designers that I can think of. I, if if you can think of any that w were around before 2014, like please let me know. But I I mean, I can, but she doesn't like, want to be named which is like when we started the league caroline hadaloxano was my partner and she was uh -huh. the first person to make a font for the league and uh, -huh. uh she was kind of like shoot i don't want to be a type designer but i guess here's a font oh, no <laughs> and then i think yeah. that's part of it too is like there have always been people that wanted to do it but the celebrity doesn't always go to them like, even if her font blew up, Caroline did not blow up for being a type designer. And so I think that that is still an issue with the current state of pretty much the whole design industry is this, like, idolization of certain categories of celebrities. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, that's why, that's why I always feel like with the league, we've always tried to be rebellious is like, uh, that's cool, but that's, we, we care about all the other people. Like, there's so many other interesting people that aren't getting attention. Yeah, I think there was a recent design article. I sorry, I can't remember the the title of it, but it was about like let us categorize types of design and design movements and just like having a different way of categorizing design that is not celebrity designer focused. Mm. And I yeah, and I really appreciate that point of view. 
Absolutely. I feel like mm-hmm. I'm, I've been seeing that out a lot lately. And that was, we did an episode on W.E.B. Du Bois's contributions to infographics and graphic design. And he was known as, you know, a so- sociologist and advocate, but like very little known as someone that led a design team in 1900 showing the first infographics that showed institutionalized racism in America. And it's just like, his name is not next to, um, you know, Paul Rand or uh, Ergo Bellin or all these other people that also made important contributions. And it's, I think it's about time that like we look less at history and this like linear, this movement happened and therefore this movement happened and kind of like see these much more nuanced parts of the history. And like, I'm certainly trying to find that, but I think that goes hand in hand with, maybe it's not just a select few celebrity designers we learned in history class that actually has been shaping our landscape. Maybe it's like, uh, there's other options there as well. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I just remembered the one last thing that I want to talk about. Um, I think like this is, this has been a thought in process that I'm still thinking through, but I think the classical intro to type project that is the classic project for like intro type designers is that you go and revive a typeface, like a revival typeface project is like a common entryway, but because type was gatekept by old white men. It's like we have a younger generation of designers that are reviving type made by old white men Mm. over and over and over again. Yeah, and and I know it's just like an exercise in form or so like people might argue, but like there's so many things that have gotten lost in history, like all these protest posters, Mm. right? Like there's like so many different things that we could make type from that aren't strictly metal type. There's also these like ephemeral things that are lying around in our like spaces in the neighborhoods that we live in and like it might not be like the most perfect form in creating text typefaces but like perhaps like it's time that we start reviving those instead of these old european types i was looking at like the fruit cart downstairs for me they're still (laughs) hand markering the 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 titles for the fruit and it's still really even it's like super even and lettered and i'm like (gasps) that's amazing taking a look at these yeah yeah you should it. totally do that like just just buy a bunch of bananas like uh can i can i get that too yeah, just one one sec i mean are you lynn are you familiar with like trey seal's work at vocal type because like yeah. I know he's on the mission of reviving some of that protesting lettering yeah like that. i've loved yeah trey was definitely before. on my mind when i said protest posters i was like uh yeah yeah, yeah. Right? i mean because it's like the you know it was it was just like so hard for like non-white men to own printing presses for the longest time so imagine the crowd of people that were allowed to make like metal type it's limited probably even less yeah yeah totally yeah so this has been like an awesome time and i (laughs) knew it would be and that's why we had you as our first guest and i'm super excited to share this with our audience i think you had insights on so many things as far as like moving careers and representation in the field and you know kind of what does it look like to be an educator right now so i thank you lynn we super thank you you micah for inviting me (laughs) it it Uh, means so much fun like i just like have i just like consciously know that it's my thing to be like thinking about something in the background and i just kind of miss two steps i like talk about this and i skip two steps but like yeah thank you for putting up with me and it's amazing to just like talk to both of you i think it's gonna come out great i think it's gonna be awesome this one's for our followers. If you want to follow Lynn, her Instagram and Twitter handle is at Lynn Yoon, L-Y-N-N-E, 
Y-U-N. And her portfolio website is at lynnyoon.com. Mm-hmm.